The passage is Luke chapter 10, verses 25 to 29 for this lesson. However, we will read to verse 37 because this section we will study now and the next section actually go together because the second section is an illustration of what it means to love our neighbor as ourself and thereby to love God. The passage, though, for now is Luke 10, 25 to 29, the incident of the self-righteous lawyer, the self-righteous lawyer or scribe who approaches Christ with a question. Luke 10, 25, And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How does it read to you? And he answered and said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But wishing to justify himself, he said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied and said, A certain man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, and they stripped him and beat him and went off, leaving him half dead. And by chance a certain priest was going down on that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. And likewise a Levite also, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, who was on a journey, came upon him, and when he saw him, he felt compassion, and came to him and bandaged up his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them. And he put him on his own beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And on the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, when I return, I will repay you. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? And he said, The one who showed mercy toward him. And Jesus said to him, Go and do the same. Well, in verses 25 to 29, Jesus has this lawyer or scribe that approaches him. We know that lawyers in this period were also scribes, and scribes were lawyers, that these two terms are synonymously used. We can tell this from Mark chapter 12, 28, where it says a scribe approached him with a question like this. And then in Matthew 22, 22, 35, it says a lawyer approached him with a question like this, similar, uh, actually not a, the, the same question, but a similar issue came up, that is, what is the greatest commandment to love God and to love our neighbor? That, that kind of issue came up with them, but in those parallel accounts, not an exact parallel to this, but parallel in, in terms of lawyer and scribe. So this is a man who knows a lot about the Old Testament. He knows a lot about the Bible, because he's not only to transcribe it, to record it and transcribe it for successive generations to have copies of it, but also he is skilled in it, so skilled in it, that he is consulted as a legal expert on whatever the Law of Moses says, whatever the Old Testament says. So that's the kind of man who approaches Christ. He is a very knowledgeable, skilled man. And... Luke tells us, and behold, a certain lawyer stood up and put him to the test. And behold, why, whenever the Bible says behold, it's saying, listen up, look up, something is about to happen that's amazing or startling. And that is, he stands up to ask Jesus a question. Normally when people stand up, when others are not standing, and somebody stands up, it's in order for the attention to be drawn to the one who is standing. So he wants Jesus to notice him, and he wants Jesus to... Um, give his attention to him and to his question. It says, he put him to the test. He put Jesus to the test. Now, this is not a, uh, a friendly test. This is not a cordial test. This is not a, just an inquisitive mind, an innocent kind of question, kind of a test or question. It is actually malicious. It is malicious because we know in verse 25 Luke tells us that the, this lawyer was wishing to justify himself. He wanted to make an excuse. He wanted to, to declare himself righteous, but not Jesus or not others, or he didn't want the righteousness of God. He thought he was uh, well and righteous himself. That's why he's justifying himself 
declaring his own justification. So in context, we know that this lawyer has ill intent. We can also tell that when a test is brought forward to Christ and questions are brought forward from people like this, it is typically malicious. Example, Matthew 22, Matthew 22, 15. The whole section from 15 until the end of the chapter, 15 to 26, Matthew 22, 15 to 46, excuse me, 46 has this kind of tests and questions that are brought to Christ. But let's just notice a few pertinent verses in this section. Matthew 22, 15, it says, Then the Pharisees went and counseled together how they might trap him in what he said. Counsel together and trap him. Verse 18, when they asked the question, it says, But Jesus perceived their malice and said, Why are you testing me, you hypocrites? Why are you testing me, you hypocrites? Then we have the incident of the Sadducees. And after the Sadducees ask him a question, and he, they have nothing to say when Jesus answers it, Matthew twenty-two thirty-four. After the Sadducees had asked, it says, Matthew twenty-two thirty-four. But when the Pharisees heard that he had put the Sadducees to silence, they gathered themselves together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him. Notice here the brazenness, the audacity of the Pharisees. They just saw that the Sadducees were silenced. They were unable to trap Jesus. But that didn't stop them. They gathered themselves together, and they had one of their own ask Jesus a question to test him. And at the end of it, verse 46, no one was able to answer him a word, nor did anyone dare from that day on to ask him another question. This is showing the foolishness and maliciousness of these questions intended to trip up Christ, but he wouldn't be tripped up because Jesus is more intelligent, more brilliant, more knowledgeable and accurate than they are. And that's the kind of test that this lawyer in Luke 10 presents to Christ. We have to look at it as a negative and a pernicious question, a pernicious test. So he asks, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now that is an important question. If you ask it innocently, if you ask it in a genuine spirit, then it's fine. But he's not doing that. And he's asking the most important question any human being could ever ask, right? He's asking about eternal life. Eternal life, eternal death. How, how can I make sure... I possess this eternal life or that I will inherit this eternal life? It's an important question because it has to do with eternal matters. Not uh, what kind of food am I going to eat? What am I going to drink today? What am I going to wear today? Where am I going to live today? What friends should I have? Not those kinds of questions. How can I be successful in life? How can I have popularity? It's not asking that. It's asking about eternal life. So in that sense, he had... A good thing in his question. However, it says, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? That's where the problem is. He thinks he must do something. He is assuming that he must do something, not believe in Christ, not believe in God's method of eternal life, but in his own self-sufficiency, his own righteousness, his own self-righteousness. That's what he wants. He wants to do something. He wants to give some money, put it in the temple. He wants to do something like that. He wants attendance in the temple, something like that. He wants the, the minutiae of the law of Moses, that I kept this and I did that. He wants to be able to say that. He wants to be able to say, I offered the sacrifices that you asked me to offer uh, on the days you asked me to offer them, I offered all of those sacrifices. I kept the festivals. I did this. I did that. He wants to be able to say something like that or to say that he did everything, that he perfectly lived it. That's one problem. And we do know he wants to focus on works, his good works, to present them to God instead of the work of Christ. He wants to present his own work because it says in verse 29, he was wishing to justify himself. He wanted to declare himself righteous based on his own actions, based on his own doings, not 
the righteousness of God found in Christ. The other problem with his question is he says, do to inherit. Who typically, who typically does anything to inherit? Don't people inherit because they are sons of the family or sons and daughters of the family? Don't they inherit it because the father chooses to give an inheritance? Isn't that the way it happens? It doesn't happen because the children do something to inherit. They inherit because the father chooses to give eternal inheritance or, excuse me, physical inheritance. But in this case, he's asking about eternal inheritance. So our heavenly father, he, he doesn't realize, this lawyer doesn't realize, the heavenly father, he chooses who will receive his grace to inherit eternal life. He doesn't understand about how grace is given to the elect by the choice of God. Romans 9, Romans 11 clearly teach this, that it is by God's grace, by His predestinarian grace that He gives to His elect, that's how we believe and repent and inherit eternal life. He chooses us to be His sons. It doesn't happen by works. So, though the topic is a good topic, His means of receiving eternal life is completely cloudy and muddy. So Jesus understands this. He knows this. And that's why Jesus says what he does in the following verses. Verse 26. And he said to him, Jesus said to the lawyer, What is written in the law? How does it read to you? First, what is written in the law? What's written? What is there? So it's a matter of fact. And then the second question, how does it read to you? Matter of interpretation. So what are the facts? What is the evidence? What's there? And then how do you understand it? What's your interpretation of it? Let's see if you understand what is actually written there. What, whatever Moses and the prophets wrote, do you know what's there? And do you have a correct understanding of what's there? That's how you can know about eternal life. From that, we note that we too, we need to know what is written and we also need to understand how to read it properly or how to understand it properly. Those two are key for everyone, to know what is there and then to understand it correctly. Well, this also assumes, Jesus' question, what is written in the law? Uh, it assumes that the Old Testament speaks of eternal life, speaks of forgiveness of sins. For, speaks of Christ dying for our sins and rising from the dead. There are many, many examples of this. There is Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah chapter 53 describes the death and resurrection of Christ. Not of Isaiah the prophet, not of Hezekiah the king, not of Josiah the king or anybody else. It's speaking of the death and resurrection of Christ. Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. It's speaking of Him. There are many such passages in the Old Testament that speak of the death and resurrection of Christ. So those passages would explain how one must believe and how one is justified. In fact, speaking of Isaiah chapter 53, let's read a little bit of that passage. For example, we'll read from... Isaiah 53, verse 10, 53, 10. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring, he will prolong his days. And the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. Therefore I will allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the booty with the strong, because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. It's speaking in verses 10 and 12 of Jesus' death, clearly of his death and the purpose of his death, to justify the many, Verse 11, as he will bear their iniquities. Verse 12, 
He himself bore the sin of many. So Jesus would pay the penalty for our sins. By faith in him, he will justify us. That was the means of justification. So these are the kinds of things the lawyer should have known and understood. And if he did, he wouldn't ask Christ this question. He wouldn't even have to ask it innocently, let alone maliciously. He would not have to ask if he had already read and understood properly. Yet he didn't. However, he did know what the perfect requirements were. He did have some understanding. Verse 27, the lawyer says, Luke 10, 27, And he answered and said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. He first quotes Deuteronomy 6, 5, and then he quotes Leviticus 19, 18. Deuteronomy 6, 5, and Leviticus 19, 18. The greatest commandment and the second greatest commandment. These would have been known by the Jews and worn by the Jews in the time of Christ on their bodies. They had phylacteries, small boxes that they carried on their person, and inside were wrapped up very tiny pieces of, of uh, papyri. They were written, these commandments were written on there, and they were supposed to remember them and recite them daily, morning and night. They were supposed to recite them daily. So early, likely, from the time of Moses, Moses taught the people what the two greatest commandments are. And he made them have the phylacteries, the boxes, on their head and uh, on their forehead and, on their, and tassels on their garments. He would have them wear those to remind them of the Word of God and these two greatest commandments. So they knew. They knew all the way from the time of Moses who wrote Leviticus and Deuteronomy. He gives the correct answer. This is what is necessary to inherit eternal life or to receive eternal life. It is necessary to love God and love our neighbor. Verse 28, And he, Jesus, said to him, You have answered correctly. He has the facts right. Do this and you will live. You have answered correctly. Firstly, we note that this lawyer, he knew what was factually in the Old Testament. He understood clearly what was there in the Old Testament. And he gives the correct answer to what is there in the Old Testament for eternal life. That shows that, and Jesus says, you have answered correctly. That shows that unbelievers can read the Bible, they can read the Bible and understand its facts, understand the interpretation of those facts, and that this can be clearly known. These three truths. In other words, he's, this is another argument for the clarity of Scripture. The theologians call it, from the time of the Reformation on, the perspicuity of Scripture or the clarity of Scripture. The Scriptures on many essential topics, on many essential issues, on many issues, it is very clear and anybody can understand what it's saying. This is an example. He knew the facts, he had the correct interpretation, and he clearly knew what was there. And Jesus confirms it, you have answered correctly. The problem, the problem, Jesus says, do this and you will live. Jesus alludes to uh, Leviticus 18.5, Leviticus 18.5, which passage is repeated in other places in the Old Testament. Jesus says, do this and you will live. That is, do this love of God and love of neighbor and you'll live. You'll have eternal life. Jesus confirms that if there is complete and utter obedience to love God and love your neighbor, then God will give you eternal life. That's what Jesus means here. Jesus does not mean that this was the intended way for people to go to heaven. 
Jesus meant that this was the hypothetical way for people to go to heaven, not the intended way for people to go to heaven. This is the challenge presented to man. These are the commandments. Do these commandments and you'll live. Why do we say this was the hypothetical and not the prescribed way to get to heaven? Because it's impossible for anybody to love God, as it says in 27, with our whole life and love our neighbor as ourself. It's impossible to carry this out every moment of the day, every day of our life until death. It's impossible. Utterly impossible. And when God instituted these laws to love Him and to love neighbor, and all that those imply, He knew man would not be able to do it, and He knew it should and would drive man, if He had proper understanding and a tender heart, to believe in Christ. All of this was intended in the Old Testament. Let's show that to be the case. Let's prove that. The first example is Deuteronomy chapter 27. Deuteronomy chapter 27. This chapter is a chapter of commandments, blessings, and curses. And especially the, the curse is enumerated in the last half of the chapter. But notice in the first part, Deuteronomy 27, verse 1, it says, Then Moses and the elders of Israel charged the people, saying, Keep all the commandments which I command you today. Okay? That's similar to what Jesus says, right? Do this. And here Moses says, Keep all the commandments. Keep every commandment which I command you today. Which shows that Moses knew his commandments were God's commandments. They were not Moses' own commandments, but he delivered them from the mouth of God. Okay? Well then, after the curses from in the middle of the chapter, look at the last verse of that chapter, Deuteronomy 27, 26. 27, 26. He says, Cursed is he who does not confirm the words of this law by doing them. And all the people shall say, Amen. Moses makes them pronounce a curse on themselves. He says, Cursed is he who does not confirm the words of this law by doing them. And all the people shall say, Amen. That means that if they don't do the laws, they don't confirm the words of the law. And if they don't do to confirm, they are under a curse. Moses taught them that, and they acknowledged that they understood it. That's why they say, Amen. They understood what Moses meant. That means that Moses gave them commandments that he knew they would not obey. He knew they would not obey. Uh, one more. This is a fun study. Deuteronomy chapter 31. Deuteronomy chapter 31. Deuteronomy chapter 31. Notice verse 24, 31-24. And it came about when Moses finished writing the words of this law in a book until they were complete, that Moses commanded the Levites who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, saying, Take this book of the law and place it beside the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God, that it may remain there as a witness against you. Notice there, against you. He's about to die and he's preaching against the people. Okay, then 27, why does he say against you? These words are against you, a, a witness against you. 27, for I know your rebellion and your stubbornness. Behold, while I am still alive with you today, you have been rebellious against the Lord. How much more than after my death? Assemble to me all the elders of your tribes and your officers, that I may speak these words in their hearing and call the heavens and the earth to witness against them. For I know that after my death you will act corruptly and turn from the way which I commanded you, and evil will befall you in the latter days. For you will do that which is evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger with the work of your hands. Moses had no confidence in the people that they would keep the commandments he delivered from God to them. He had no confidence in them. 
One more example. Ezekiel chapter 20. Ezekiel chapter 20. Ezekiel chapter 20. Ezekiel, he recounts the sins of the people. Um, much of what he recounts is what they did in the wilderness under Moses. Now, Ezekiel 20, verse 11. We'll read a f the first few verses we read in this chapter will be verses that confirm that the laws are good laws and that they have life in them. Okay? Ezekiel 20, 11. And I gave them my statutes and informed them of my ordinances, by which if a man observes them, he will live. See there? Statutes, ordinances, by which if a man observes them, if he does them, he will live. There's eternal life right there, if you do them. 13. But the house of Israel rebelled against me in the wilderness. They did not walk in my statutes, and they rejected my ordinances, by which if a man observes them, he will live. And my Sabbaths they greatly profaned. Then I resolved to pour out my wrath on them in the wilderness to annihilate them. They could have prevented annihilation if they had obeyed. They could have had life. But they didn't have life because they disobeyed. They rebelled. 21. But the children rebelled against me. They did not walk in my statutes, nor were they careful to observe my ordinances, by which if a man observes them, he will live. They profane my Sabbath, so I resolved to pour out my wrath on them to accomplish my anger against them in the wilderness. Clearly, these passages are saying that if they had obeyed God's word, then they would have had life and God would not have punished them. If they had obeyed, but they did not obey. Verse 25, verse 25, Ezekiel 20, 25. And I also gave them statutes that were not good and ordinances by which they could not live. Wait a minute. Now why does Ezekiel say that? I gave them, I also gave them statutes, this is the same statutes, right? The law of Moses, that were not good and ordinances by which they could not live. What does he mean? He means that they were there to expose your sins and to realize that you are under a curse, you cannot justify yourselves, you cannot do works in accordance with the law because you're going to transgress and even one transgression is going to put you under a curse. In fact, that's the way it reads in Galatians 3.10. Cursed is everyone, Galatians 3.10, cursed is everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law to perform them. Galatians 3.10 says all. If you don't obey all, you're under a curse, which means if you disobey one, you're under a curse. That's why James says in James 2.10, uh, whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. Romans 3.20. And Romans 3.20? Romans 3.20. Let's talk about how knowledge of the law gives knowledge of our sin. Yes, knowledge of the law gives knowledge of our sin. Yes, let's read. Yes. Um, let's read 319. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. That was the intent of the law, to expose our sin, the knowledge of sin. But also, what's also in the law? Verse 21. But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction. The law. And, and you know, that was Romans 3, 19 to 22, and also Romans 7, 7. Romans 7, 7. Yeah. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to no sin except through the law, for I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, you shall not covet. 
But is the fault with the law? That's our next question. The fault is not with the law, but with us. Verse 8, Romans 7, 8. But sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is dead. See there? The problem is us and our sin. Not the good law, but because when the law exposes our sin, we either repent of the sin or we revel in the sin. We either will revel or we will repent. Another place where it says that the problem is with us and not the law is Hebrews 8, Hebrews 8, 7. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion sought for a second. For finding fault with them, he says, Behold, days are coming, says the Lord, when I will effect a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Where's the problem? The problem wasn't the law of Moses. It wasn't the law of Moses. The problem was with the people who did not understand the place of the law of Moses to expose their sins and to drive them to faith in Christ. Who was also in the law? Genesis 3.15, Deuteronomy 18.15 to 18. There are different, many places in the law where Christ is preached. So they didn't understand all that. It's actually also, kind of cool. Also, oh. Romans 3.9 through uh, 12. None is righteous. Yes, Romans 3.9 to 12. None, none is nobody. righteous. Zero. Nobody. That's actually cool because then you can see that, that, especially with the Hebrew verse, that they didn't see the purpose of the law it was just for the knowledge. Yeah. Like, uh, that's it. Yes, yes. They thought it was all for them and for them to obtain their own righteousness. Another place where this is explained in greater detail is Galatians chapter 3, especially Galatians 3, 15 until the end of the chapter, 15 to 28. That place explains that the law was intended to be a tutor or schoolmaster to lead us to Christ, to have faith in Christ, to be justified in Christ. So, Jesus says, back to Luke 10, 10, do this and you will live. Well, this lawyer did not understand all of this. That's why he says in verse 29, but wishing to justify himself, he said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? He not only did not understand the purpose of the law to drive us to Christ, but he continued to believe that the law was meant to justify himself. There it says, but wishing to justify himself, to think that he already kept the laws perfectly. So that's one issue. He did not understand all of this. He was uh, fixed uh, and fixated on his own righteousness. This is the problem with the people of Israel, and for that matter, all of us. People of all religions do this. Notice in Romans 9, Romans 9.30, at the end of the chapter, Romans 9.30, What shall we say then, that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness attained righteousness, even the righteousness which is by faith? But Israel, pursuing a law of righteousness, did not arrive at that law. There he says it again. They were pursuing a law of righteousness, do this and you will live, But Paul says they did not arrive at that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as though it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone, that is Christ, just as it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. They refused to believe in Christ, and they were trusting in their own works, their own works righteousness or works salvation. Romans 10.3 says, For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. Verse 4, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Romans 10.3 and 4. They were seeking their own righteousness. They did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God, which is in Christ. And Christ is the end of the law. He is the intent and purpose of the law 
to everyone who believes in him. Then the true nature or purpose of the law is fulfilled. The lawyer did not get it. So he wants to continue to justify himself. Now let's see, in verse 29, how is it that he justifies himself? And who is my neighbor? What he has done is that he has constructed by man-made religion, by the human mind, human wisdom, he has constructed a way to fulfill the second greatest commandment without really obeying it the way God intended. So he has manipulated and twisted the commandment to mean something that God did not intend for it to mean so that he could palliate his own conscience and, and say, well, I fulfilled that. I'm not guilty of that. I'm at ease. My conscience is at ease. I fulfilled that. I didn't transgress that commandment. That's why he says, and who is my neighbor? And this is what everybody does. This is what everybody does. What we do is whenever we want to say that we're not guilty of a sin, we like to say, I fulfilled it because this is the true interpretation. When we wiggle out of it and distort what the true meaning of the Bible is. And then what, what else do we do? Um, we have this tendency to say, well, you know, yeah, I said that. That's what it says. But, you know, the true meaning of it, it you know, it's up for grabs. You know, it's up for interpretations. It's not as clear. And, you know, I first announced it. I realized that. But it's really not as clear as you're making it out to be, you see. That's what, that's what he's doing with Jesus. Who the neighbor is should have been obvious to him. It should have been obvious. And in this case, the neighbor is somebody who is in an emergency. There is an urgent need to help somebody. You see him right there. If you were there, stranded and beaten up, you would want somebody to help you, right? Love your neighbor as yourself. You would want somebody to help you if you were there, stranded on the street. So love your neighbor as yourself. When you see an emergency, go help. Because that's where you would be. If you were there, you would want that to happen to you. You would want somebody to come and assist you and deliver you from your emergency. That's the parable of the Good Samaritan. That's one example. And this is an important example because he prided himself likely into thinking that I only need to be kind like this to my own colleagues. Or, that is, the lawyers, the, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, only to my own colleagues, I need to be like this. I don't need to be outside of my circle of friends. Or, maybe I'll extend it to my nation, to the Hebrew people. I'm going to be kind and generous and loving like this, love my neighbor, meaning the Hebrew people, but I'm not going to be towards the Gentiles. I'm not going to be towards the Samaritans. I'm not going to be towards those other people who worship idols. I'm not going to do nice things to them. When I see them in need, I'm not going to do anything for them. Likely that is why Jesus shows him up here by saying that this Samaritan understood, but you don't understand. The Samaritan did right, but you don't do right. Let's explore this further on two levels. One is how the Bible is clear it's just that we, whenever we want to disobey, we say it's not clear. When we don't want to obey it, we say it's not clear. This is a habit that people make when they want to disobey God and make themselves feel good or to declare to other people that they're not disobeying God. Let's see a few examples of this. The first example will be in Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5. 519. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident. See the word evident? He's trying to tell us it's obvious, it's plain as day. You know what the deeds of the flesh are. Immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envyings, drunkenness, carousings, and things like these. 
he has to say that in order to put us all under the deeds of the flesh. Because we, when we read this list, this vice list, we are prone to thinking, well, you know, my major sin is not listed right here, so I'm off the hook. No. That's the tendency we have. But he's saying, and things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Practicing those things, you shall not inherit the kingdom of God. And he says, twice I forewarned. Twice. Who forewarns but somebody who's trying to tell another that there's danger and how to avoid the danger, right? And the consequence, no eternal life. I told you all that. You will not inherit the kingdom of God if you are doing these things. And then the opposite of it. 22, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. Now, 1 John. 1 John. 1 John also tells us that it is clear, it's obvious, it's plain, it's black and white. We can know who is of God and who is of the devil. 1 John 3, 7. 1 John 3, 7. Little children, let no one deceive you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, that he might destroy the works of the devil. No one who is born of God practices sin, because his seed abides in him, and he cannot sin because he is born of God. By this, the children of God... And the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. Twice there, and also by contrast, the apostle tells us in verse 7, let no one deceive you, which means it's possible not to be deceived. Right? If he says, let no one deceive you, that means God has equipped us with whatever is necessary in His Word and by His Spirit so that we're not deceived. So we can't say it was unclear. You didn't show me the way. It wasn't obvious. He says, don't let anybody deceive you. And then the difference, the night and day difference is righteousness and sin. If somebody's practicing righteousness, then you know that he's righteous and he belongs to God who is righteous. But if he is practicing sin, he's of the devil. There's no middle ground, right? There's, even, there's either heaven and hell, there's God or the devil, Christ or the devil, right? Light and darkness. There's only two ways, righteousness and wickedness. You're either born of God or you are born of the devil. Verse 10. By this the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. There's our second word. Obvious. You can know who's a child of God and who's a child of the devil. And he gives us two ways. He expands on that throughout the letter, but these two ways in verse 10. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. If they don't practice righteousness and if they don't love their brother, then they are not of God. They are of the devil. And he says it's obvious, it's plain. Many, many things in the Bible are clear teachings of the Bible. But what we have to do is prevent ourselves and the people that we know from making excuses and saying, well, that's unclear, there's many ways to interpret it, and therefore we can leave it alone and go on our merry way and do whatever we want and live happily ever after. That's what people want to do. They don't want to uh, be held accountable to what the Bible clearly teaches. That's what the lawyer did. Who's my neighbor? You know, actually, now I was giving you the right answers. Now, actually, now I'm not so sure. Who's my neighbor? Well, he's just trying to get himself off the hook. The next thing is, in Luke 10, notice that the focus was on the neighbor. In verses, Luke 10, 27 to 29, love God and love neighbor, right? 
But wishing to justify himself, he said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Why did he do that? Why did he do that? Who is my neighbor? Because it's easier to say we love God. It's easier to say we love God. It's harder to say we love our neighbor because if someone shows us we're not loving our neighbor, they can point the finger at us and say, it's obvious you don't love your neighbor. And the problem, furthermore, is people put a wedge between the love of God and love of neighbor. They say that we can love God, but we don't have to love our neighbor. They put a wedge between the two. The Ten Commandments, for example, the first four of the Ten Commandments teach us how to love God. No other gods besides Him, no idols, don't take His name in vain, and remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. They are teaching us directly how to love God. Now, let's say for the first two, you could easily fool people, at least with the first two, if not all four, and say, well, I don't have any other God, I believe in the true God. I believe in the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. I believe in the God of Israel. I believe that there's only one God. I believe Father, Son, Holy Spirit. I believe there's only one God. People can say that. And if they say that for their whole life, who can accuse them of believing in some other God? They can't. So forth with those first four commandments. But it's harder with the last six. In fact... With the last six, people can see more clearly if you are disobeying them. And not only can they see that you are disobeying them, they can accuse you. Okay? So, to avoid accusation, to avoid blame, people like to say they love God and they love their neighbor without really doing any love of neighbor. In fact, they hate their neighbor. Let's stay in 1 John. 1 John will explain this connection. That you can't say you love God, but not love your neighbor. First example is 1 John chapter 3, verses 11 and 12. 11 and 12. Speaking of who the neighbor is and whether we are loving that neighbor correctly. 1 John 3, 11. For this is the message which you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Not as Cain, who was of the evil one and slew his brother. And for what reason did he slay him? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. We're supposed to love one another. And notice... Where does this love get manifested first? Between siblings. Cain and Abel were the sons of Adam and Eve. Genesis chapter 4, right? Among siblings. Love of neighbor includes family members. Another place, for reference sake, would be Ephesians 5, 28 to 29, where the apostle says, He who loves his wife loves himself. There he goes to the marital union and says that the way that the husband treats the wife, and by implication the other way around, the way the wife treats her husband, that this is the way we show love of neighbor. So it's there in the marriage, it's there in the family. This is the way love is shown. That is where the first evidence of true love is demonstrated. Then... In the church. And that's what John means when he keeps saying it, brother and brother in this letter. Example, 1 John 3, 1 John 3, 17. 1 John 3, 17. But whoever has the world's goods and beholds his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? If we have the material possessions of the world, and we see our brother in need, and in the context of 1 John, it is brother in the church, brother in Christ. See our brother in need, and we close our heart against him, 
How does the love of God abide in him? The first love, love toward God, isn't true if he's not demonstrating it by loving his neighbor. Verse 23, And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he commanded us. Just as he commanded us. Chapter 4, 1 John 4, 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Love one another. Love is from God. Everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. If we claim to know God and be born of Him, we're one of His children, then we ought to love. Verse 12. 1 John 4, 12, No one has beheld God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us, and His love is perfected in us. We have His love, therefore we would love Him if we love one another, he says. Verse 19, 1 John 4, 19, We love because He first loved us. If someone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. No mincing words there, is it? For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. Many people say, I love God. But they hate their brother. And they hate their brother in ways that are contrary to what the Bible says people in the church, believers, should treat each other. They don't treat each other properly, and when they don't, they actually hate their brother, and they are liars. And then he says, the one who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. He says that it's more difficult, and actually impossible, to love the invisible God when you do not love the visible brother. The two are connected. And you tr if you truly love God, you will truly love your brother. And lastly, 1 John 5, 1. 5, 1. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and whoever loves the Father loves the child born of Him. If you love the Father, you will love the child born of Him. If you don't love the Father, you will not love the child born of Him, is the implication. So, in Luke 10, when the lawyer says, trying to justify himself, and who is my neighbor, he thinks he's going to trap Christ, when actually his question shows his unbelief, his utter blindness and unbelief, because he thinks he loves God, but he does not want to love his neighbor. He wants to justify himself. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.